0: Hello, and welcome to another episode of our podcast from the Blue Earth Summit, a movement and community driving positive action for our natural world. In this series, we'll bring you some of the highlight talks and conversations from our first summit in Bristol in October 2021. In this episode, Bertrand Piccard. We're forever talking about problems, but what about the solutions? Swiss explorer Bertrand Piccard is a member of the Breitling Explorer Squad. He's a psychiatrist, and ambassador for clean technology. And for him, the impossible doesn't exist in reality, but in our way of thinking. To progress with the battle against climate change, we must get rid of obstacles, not fight for pole position with one another. Part of the legendary dynasty of explorers and scientists who conquered the heights and depths of our planet, Bertrand continues to set new challenges, all of them designed to promote renewable energies and clean technologies. Have you noticed that most
1: of the speeches about protection of the environment, climate change, pollution, are speeches about the problems. It's usually a huge list and description of all the things that go bad. And at the end, it is said, we have to change. We have to do better. And everybody applauds, and it's the end. And we stay seated after the speech, and we think, okay, the situation is bad, we have to change, but how can we change? What are the solutions? The problems, we know them. How can we improve the current state of the world? And if we speak of solutions, it's quite difficult in the beginning because each person bringing solution is said it's impossible. And we ask, but why is it impossible? And the answer is usually always the same, because nobody did it before. And it's the wrong answer. It's precisely because something has not been done before that we have to try. Otherwise, it will always remain impossible. But how to try? And I think it's important in the huge challenges we have today in front of us, to understand that the impossible does not exist in the reality. The impossible exists in our way of thinking. When we believe that we have to rely on our certitudes, on our habits, on our beliefs, in order to prepare a different world. But how can we prepare a different world if we continue to think the same? Which means that we have to identify what we deeply believe, and try something else. And I'm going to give you a couple of examples of that, of these changes of paradigm. When the father of my grandfather installed the first telephone in Switzerland, he was a professor at the university, and he made a demonstration, and all his colleagues told him, it's very nice, but it has no future. (laughs) Why that? Because they thought, and that was the paradigm of the time, that if you wanted to use a telephone, you need to pull a cable between the one who is calling and the one who is called. So to make it global, you have to uh, connect all the houses of the world to every single other house of the world, even houses of people you don't know, because maybe someday you need to call them. That was the paradigm of that time, 150 years ago. Of course, it's not practical. It's billions of billions of billions of billions of cables You could not even see the sky. What was the paradigm shift? It was the invention of the operator. You have only one cable coming from each house and you have an operator connecting people. I like that example because it shows that the one who made the revolution in telecommunication is not the inventor of the telephone. He's the one who changed the paradigm. The same for the big exploration feats of last century, walking on the moon, climbing the Everest mountain, flying in the sky, those were not new ideas. It's not somebody who invented it because it was dreams of humankind for thousands of years. Why did they suddenly happen? Almost all within 66 years. Some would say technology. Yeah, for the moon landing, okay, but for nothing else. Look at the first airplane. It's made out of wood and cloth. It means the Egyptians could have flown from the top of the pyramids 5,000 years ago. Why didn't they do it? Because it was prohibited by the mythology. Only the gods were allowed to fly. And when Leonardo da Vinci at the Renaissance built models of airplanes, he he was not crazy enough to test them he would have been tortured and burned by the church. The Nepalese, the Tibetans, they saw the Everest for centuries, but it was prohibited to profanate the holy mountain, which means that all humankind remained in these old paradigms with a very, very slow evolution until suddenly at the beginning of the 20th century, explorers broke the rules, and the change of paradigm was psychological because explorers exist to break the rules. Explorers are people who hate the status quo, who hate to see the things that don't work. Explorers are not satisfied with what they see. They want different, they want better, they want something else, and they work for it. Which means that in the following 66 years, between 1903 and 1969, you have the first airplane, The South Pole, the North Pole, the Everest Mountain, the Marina Trench, and the Moon. And what does it show? It shows that innovation does not come when you have new ideas. Innovation comes when you get rid of old certitudes. And then you have the mind empty enough to welcome something new. And I believe today, it's exactly what is missing. Today, we have ideologies. We have ideologies of the ecology. Ideology of the industry, ideology of the left-wing, ideology of the right-wing. And everybody is fighting together to impose his own certitudes and beliefs instead of trying to get rid of everything that prevents us to understand what the others are thinking in order to improve ourselves and improve the situation. So if we speak of achieving the impossible, it was exactly the same when I wanted to fly around the world non-stop with the Breitling Orbiter balloon, which, by the way, was built here in Bristol, so I'm really happy to to be back here. But if the, the team from Cameron Balloon and all the team of Breitling from that time were here, they would remember all the skepticism there was when I announced that I would try to do this adventure. People told me, you're a complete beginner in ballooning. You don't even know that you cannot do that. And I said, why that? And they said, because the winds take three weeks to go around the world, and the balloon who had flown the longest has flown six days. It was six days at the time. So you cannot do it. Okay, so that's the paradigm. The paradigm is usually true until the moment that we want to change it. So we have to change it. And Cameron Balloons invented another type of balloon, which is partially helium, partially hot air, in order to triple the duration of the flight. And actually, it's exactly what happened. We flew not six days, but 20 days. We did 45,000 kilometers. It's the longest flight ever in terms of duration and distance in the entire history of aviation. Thanks to the support of a watch company who believed that it was possible. But at the landing, we were elated with my friend Brian Jones. But it was really tight, because from the 3.7 tons of liquid propane we had at the start, there was 40 kilos left in the last fuel tank. You see the, the frost showing the level of the fuel. So when you hear that the sky is the limit, don't believe it, it's wrong, the sky is not the limit. The fuel is the limit. <laughs> and you know, in our world where we speak about fossil energy, We don't understand that we have limited resources. And we are wasting them like hell, as if it was unlimited. In a balloon, you understand that it's limited. Because if you have no more gas, no more fuel, you fall down from the sky. So this was the beginning of the dream of flying with no fuel. Try to change the paradigm and write a new page in the history of aviation. When the Brightling Orbiter capsule was brought in the Smithsonian Air and Space Museum in Washington, together with the big milestones of aviation, the Wright Brothers Flyer, the X-1 of Chuck Yeager, Apollo uh, 11, Spirit of St. Louis of Charles Lindbergh, I thought, wow, of course I was emotional to have my capsule in this prestigious museum. But I was not in the middle of my life to look at the past and think, okay, it's beautiful, now I put myself in an armchair, I look at this picture to be proud of it. No, of course not. I think it was clearly the moment where we had to understand that a new cycle in aviation was possible, but with no fuel, with no pollution, and no carbon emissions. And this was the beginning of the dream of Solar Impulse. Now, of course, I had... This picture made by an artist on the computer before we even knew how the plane would look like. Photovoltaic cells on the wing in order to feed with electricity the electric motors, feed the batteries during the day to use the batteries at night in order to break another paradigm that was saying that solar energy doesn't work at night. Of course, solar energy should work at night. So I went to the aeronautical industry. I showed them the picture and I said, can you build me the plane? And they looked at me and said, We need one or two minutes to calculate that the sun is not going to give enough energy to fly day and night with an airplane. So we cannot do it. The answer of the CEO of Boeing was the the best. He looked at me and said, Of course not. (laughs) And this is the paradigm of today. We're not caring about the use of energy, we're caring about the production. So if there is not enough production, we want to increase the production instead of reducing the consumption. So we are basically, in our world, like a stupid man in his bathtub and a leak in the bathtub. And instead of solving the leak, he opens the tap wide open to add more water to compensate the loss. This is why we're in such a deep trouble today in our world. We don't have a society of consumption, we have a society of waste. So, OK, one minute to understand that we couldn't have enough energy from the sun, three years to calculate how we could cope with the energy given by the sun in order to be more efficient, in order to, re- to reduce the consumption of energy. And for this, we needed to build an airplane, that was 72-meter wingspan, 236 feet, so between the jumbo jet and the Airbus 380. But for the weight of a family car, and the power available was the, one, was the one of a scooter. So of course, if you hear things like this, everybody's laughing and say, okay, it never existed in the history of aviation to have an airplane so big and so light. It's exactly the opposite. If it's lighter, it's smaller. If it's bigger, it's heavier but you cannot do both the big size and the low weight. So in the beginning, we were a bit like Dumbo in this situation. You remember Dumbo? Poor little elephant with the ears so big that everybody made fun of him. And we were like that with our big wings that nobody wanted to build. But it's a normal moment. It's normal. Imagine you have the dream of your life and people tell you, oh, it's easy, we're going to help you. What are you going to think? You're going to think, I didn't put the bar high enough. The dream is not ambitious enough. So if everybody tells you it's impossible, you have to think, wow, here I got something interesting. And when when so many people say it's impossible, it will bring talents to the team. Because it will bring all the people who are pioneers. All the people who want to break the certitudes, who want to push beyond the limits and bring new solutions, invent solutions that have not existed before. And at this moment, we have to remember that if Dumbo became the hero of the circus, it's because he used his problem, he used his handicap, deployed his ears and could fly. We had to deploy our wings and fly, but for that we had to build them. And to give you an example of the challenge, we had to build the structure of Solar Impulse 10 times lighter than the best glider, proportionally to the size, of course. And it was made with the same type of material than the one that, that you see there, a Flixi-Hex in Hex in the exhibit, with honeycomb carbon. But we had to find someone to do it. And because the aviation industry thought it was impossible, we had to find someone who did not know it was impossible. And that was a shipyard. But I'm not just saying that to repeat the joke of Mark Twain. But to say that if you don't know that something is impossible, you don't have any filter. You don't have the filter that reinforces your previous knowledge. You have no filter. You just let come through everything, every solution, every idea. And you look at which one is going to solve your problem. So we went to this boat manufacturer who had built, by the way, the hulls of Alinghi, who won the America's Cup for Switzerland twice in a row. And the guy told us, yeah, of course, I can make your airplane as light as you want because I know how to use carbon fiber. But I cannot work with your team because your team don't use carbon fiber for aviation. So we were a bit embarrassed with my colleague, Andre Borschberg, went back to our team. And the guy said, are you crazy or what? We cannot work with the shipyard. We never built an airplane. And it took two years to change the equation and have one plus one equal three. The shipyard, our team, and the third experience in building an airplane lighter than anyone had ever managed to do. Which means that at the end, we had a first prototype, a second prototype, and we could make it around the world. But you see how dangerous it is to be too much specialized, to have the aviation industry believing we can always only do in one way, to have the automotive industry who says we cannot have electric cars. And then you have somebody outside of the world of the automotive industry, like Elon Musk, who makes the most attractive and successful electric car. You know, just remember, it's not the people who are selling the candles who invented the light bulb. And it's the same now to fight climate change. The same for political issues. It's exactly the same if we want to have a better quality of life on Earth. We need to change the paradigms. And we have to stop to think in a straight line. We have been taught in school, in university, in our life, to think straight ahead. Why that? Because we hate the unknown, we hate the doubts, we hate the question marks as human beings in general. So we don't want to look left and right and be challenged by people who think differently. We want to go straight to the goal. And in the beginning, sometimes it works. But when you hit an obstacle, then you crash. And you think, why is life so bad with me? instead of asking, why am I not ready for life? And how do we get ready for life? How do we get ready to be performant, to be creative? By dealing with the question marks, with the doubts and with the unknown. By understanding that there are so many different directions, so many different ways to think. And it's probably the combination of all these different ways to think that will lead us to a better direction. So we need pioneers to explore these different roads. We need explorers to see where they lead. With one risk, of course, the risk of failing. Sometimes we don't succeed the first time. Sometimes we fail, but the worst is not to fail. The worst is not to try. Which means that we have to go for it. And this is something that people have not really learned in life. If people would have less fear of failing they would try much more solutions, much more directions, much more different ways to think. And we would probably not be in this cleavage where you have only people who have the certitudes that they are right and believing everybody else is wrong, which makes a huge fight. Do you see for the protection of the environment how difficult it is to create a consensus? Each one believes he is right to pollute, to save the environment, to save plastic, to use fossil fuel. Well, there are so many things that make the world what it is. And we need to find a way out of it and find the right direction to make a better world. This is why I love ballooning. Because ballooning is not a sport for me. Ballooning is a philosophy of life. It's the way to understand how we can find better solutions, change the paradigms, and get maybe a better road to success. Why that? I want to explain you. When you're flying in a balloon, you are pushed by the wind in the direction of the wind at the speed of the wind. And you can pray, swear, shout, or cry. It will not change the direction of the wind. The only freedom you have as a balloonist is to understand that the atmosphere is made out of several different layers of wind, which all have a different trajectory and a different speed. So if you want to go more to the left or more to the right, you have to fly higher or lower. In other words, you have to change your altitude if you want to change your direction. And I believe that in life, it's exactly the same. In life, we are prisoners of the winds of life. The political decisions, the economical rules, the financial problems, the pandemics, accidents, failure, love, rupture, success. All this is like the winds of life. We cannot really control it. And they carry us toward the unknown. So, of course, if we hate the unknown, our life is going to be a nightmare. But if we start to enjoy the unknown, then we will be obliged to become more creative and more performant. And in life, we can learn to change altitude also. Change altitude in the winds of life, psychologically, philosophically, spiritually, in order to catch other influences, other visions of the world, other answers, other solutions, other strategies that will reorient our trajectory in a better way. But how do you change altitude in life? It's nice to say we change altitude, we have a better vision of the world, and we are more successful. But let's be a little bit more concrete and practical. We have first to understand how a balloon works. If you want to change altitude in a gas balloon like Brightline Orbiter 3, you need to drop ballast, to drop weight. So sometimes it can be empty tanks of propane, bags of sand, reserves of food, if possible, over unpopulated areas, it's much better. But what I mean is that each time you drop a few kilos, you climb a few hundred meters. And you write down in your logbook, for every altitude given by the altimeter, you write the direction given by the GPS. And once you've gone through the entire atmosphere, for the first time of your life you have an absolute, reliable vision of the future. You know exactly for every altitude in which direction you will go. You have the future in 3D. And then you bring the balloon back to the altitude where the direction is the one that you want to have. This is exactly what we have to learn to do in life. Because in life... We have so much ballast. But the problem is that the ballast we have is what we learn to keep on board instead of throwing overboard. What's our ballast in life? Certitudes, beliefs, habits, exclamation marks, paradigms, dogmas, convictions. You know, all the things that we believe make us strong, but it's not true, it doesn't make us strong, it makes us heavy. And this is what we have to learn to throw overboard. And what does it mean, practically speaking? It means that in every discussion, in every debate, in every panel, in every question, in every action, we have to think, okay, up to now, what was my straight line? What did I think? And which other direction can I take today? In other words, we should never do or answer or think without questioning ourselves what we have always thought in the past. If I'm asking you a question, and immediately you say, of course yes or of course not, it's not your intuition that is speaking, it's your conditionment. But if I ask you something and you say, okay, until now, I probably would have answered yes or no, but now maybe I can think in another way. What would be another way to think? How could people thinking differently than me could teach me something new? And then we have access to intuition, because intuition is something that has to do with the awareness, not with the conditionment and with the habits of always repeating the same certitude. So it's quite interesting to train ourselves. Each time we hear people thinking differently, to, th- to ask to ourselves, why is he speaking differently? Why is he thinking differently? What can I learn from him? And this is a way to increase our freedom, the freedom to think in absolutely every direction, like in a firework. In a firework, you can explore this vertical axis. Every way to think, every way to behave, every altitude, and you find each time a spot of light going in a different trajectory. And once you explore everything, when you envisage everything, then you decide really what you want to do, and what you want to think. Imagine that we implement this type of thinking in the protection of the environment. Wouldn't it be quite interesting to see the result? Because what was the straight line that we heard in the last 50 years? We heard that protection of the environment, of course, was necessary, but we also heard that it was expensive that it was boring, that it required a lot of sacrifice from the population, less economical growth, less consumption, a lot of sacrifice with less mobility, less comfort, less freedom. Maybe maybe it is true to say that, but what's the result? The result is that 95% of the population started to hate ecology. 95% 95% of the population said, we don't want this type of life. We don't want to have less. Maybe we want more or at least better, but not less. And you had this cleavage for 50 years with the ecological activists trying to be heard because of the necessity to protect the environment, but they were not heard by the people who had to take the decisions in terms of legal framework industry, consumption, economy, and finance. So maybe we can try to drop ballast and to change altitude and do the opposite. Maybe we could say protection of the environment is economically profitable. It will create jobs. It's a very exciting process. We can create a lot of enthusiasm because we can promise people they will not need to make a sacrifice. Is it possible or is it not possible? Am I dreaming? Is it a new ideology or is it something that can be rooted in the reality? Well, this is exactly what I wanted to, to, to check because you cannot believe in something if you don't check it yourself. And this was really the reflections I had when I was flying with solar impulse, especially above the oceans because... The flights above the oceans were very, very long, several days and several nights alone in the cockpit. And it was absolutely magical. Can you imagine an experimental airplane which runs only on on the energy of the sun? You can fly day and night, almost forever, and you have these big propellers turning with no noise, no polluting emissions, and no fuel. And I promise you, once I pinched myself, because I thought, I'm dreaming, I'm not in the reality. <laughs> I thought, I'm, I'm pushed into the future, I'm in a science fiction movie. And not at all, absolutely not. It was the present, it was the present with what the current technologies allow us to do today. And that was a revelation. Because I understood that if I was not in the future, but only in the present, it meant that the rest of the world was in the past. The rest of the world was in the past with completely outdated systems and technologies, with combustion engines, which are 27% efficient when my electric engines were 97% efficient. The world of the past, with badly insulated houses, losing all the energy outside, Inefficient heating, cooling, and lighting systems. Outdated industrial processes. Dirty ways to burn fossil energy to have heat, electricity, or movement. It's crazy. All this is completely outdated. So we wave our smartphone to make believe we are modern, but everything else comes from the beginning of the oil era 120 years ago. So maybe it's not so much the fact that we live well, that we have comfort and private mobility that makes the world at the border of an ecological disaster. Maybe it's the old technologies and polluting technologies and inefficient technologies that we use that are really the problem. And if we wanted to change them, to change all the technologies, all the infrastructures, all the sources of energy it would either be the ruin of humankind, because it's too expensive, or the best opportunity for the economy with no more unemployment and much less inequalities in the world, if all this change would become profitable. So we have to see, is it profitable or not profitable? Because basically we have to change everything if we want to avoid the disaster that we are facing with climate change, pollution, and inequalities in this world. And this is why there was this sentence in the end of the film that you've heard before. It was the banner that we had in front of the team, take it further. Because in a big adventure, success should never be a goal in itself. Success is a way to step on a higher stage to have more credibility, more experience, more influence, more power to do something better, even better. So what was it for us? Take it further. It was to launch the Solar Impulse Foundation on the track of identifying more than 1,000 technological solutions that could protect the environment in a financial way, financially profitable way. So here again, Of course, people told me it's impossible. So I was really happy because I thought, okay, if people think it's impossible, it means that it's going to have a great impact once we'll succeed. And we succeeded. After four years, we have identified 1,300 systems, products, materials, processes, sources of energy, technologies, that create jobs and allow profit while protecting the environment, while pushing the world to be more efficient, pushing the world to be cleaner. And this is a game-changing situation because it shows that maybe we can avoid both parts of the dilemma that keep us prisoners. Today, what do we have? What, what are the two options? We can remain in the so called infinite and unlimited growth that leads us for sure to an ecological disaster, or we can follow the path of degrowth, less economical activity, which probably will lead us to a social chaos because there will be not enough wealth created to ensure the pension funds, the salaries, the social security, and it will come to a huge social mess. Both have to be refused. And we can maybe choose the third way, another way, the third way that I like to call the qualitative growth. Qualitative growth is when you decouple the creation of wealth from the quantity of the consumption to couple it with the quality of the efficiency. In other words, what will make the best business in the future will be to save the natural resources, will be to avoid pollution, will be to increase efficiency, will be to take renewable energies, which are today the cheapest source of energy. You know, I'm sorry to say it, but when I see the price of gas and oil rising like hell over the last months, I remember when I was telling 15, 20 years ago, the price of fossil energy can only go up because it's a limited resource. And the price of renewable energies can only go down because it's an unlimited resource. So it's clear that the, games, the, the rules of the game, game have changed today. What will save the world is not to speak about the problems, It is to adopt the solutions. What will save the world is not to scream about the industry, but to take the industry with us into the diversification in order to have new products, new materials, and have the industry earning money on the efficiency rather than on the quantity of the consumption. Because at the end, if I really want to provoke a little bit if I want to oblige you to drop ballast and to change altitude, if we take the speeches of this morning that I found really interesting about plastic pollution, for example, who is responsible? Is it the company who produces the plastic or the consumers who are using the plastic and throwing it into the ocean? If we speak of oil companies, are they responsible about the CO2? Or are we responsible because we are using this oil, this gas, this coal making electricity? At the end, if there were only oil producers and plastic producers, and we would not be using them, there would be no pollution. So we are responsible. Not only them, we are responsible for using that. And this is why we need other types of products. We need to be able to have a good quality of life, but with materials and products that don't destroy the environment. And who are going to build and produce these products? Not ourselves, the industry. And this is why we have partners like Breitling, but we also have partners like HoltSim making cement because we are helping them to make cement with less CO2. We want to push the companies to make new type of products. And it works. It works. We're speaking of Breitling before, you have the, 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 the booth at the entrance. Can you imagine a luxury watch company who is launching a sustainability program? But five years ago, it would be considered completely impossible. The industry would have never done that. Today, there are some industries, well, they are pioneers, not everybody is doing it, but they are pioneers and they are showing the way. With a packaging which is made out of, of upcycled plastic, taken from the ocean, the straps made from recycled PET, you have uh, the watch case that can be made from recycled composites. Well, this is interesting because you see that to be ecological, you don't need to be very marginal. You, you, You can be inside the society, inside the world, but with another mindset, with other type of technologies, maybe with common sense. And this is life-changing, you know? This is life-changing. But of course, you have pioneers who are doing their best. But as long as you have companies who don't follow the pioneers, it will take far too long to get to the result. We don't have 50 years to change the world. We have 10 years. So we can spend 10 years shouting to change it and not bringing solutions. Or we can bring solutions like we do, but if they are not adopted, it will be useless also. So so the next step today is to have the political world changing the legal framework. And I think here, as citizens, we have a huge leverage because we are not in a dictator like other countries. In Europe, we are in democracies. And we can push the governments to go in the direction we want by the elections, by voting. And we need today to have a legal framework that obliges the world to use the new technologies that ban the old polluting systems. We need modern standards and norms in order to oblige people to be more efficient in terms of resources, in terms of energy. And like this it will create a necessity that is going to pull the new answers, the new solutions to the market. And as consumers, we will then have them all available for us. Because today, most of the new solutions, we don't have them. You want solar energy, you want wind energy, how do you get it? Maybe it's next to you, it's a coal power plant producing the electricity. You cannot change it by screaming, but you can change it by voting and by asking the governments to use the modern technologies like the one that the Solar Impulse Foundation has identified in the last four years, and that now we want to push for adoption. This picture is the last one I did during the flight around the world with the Lang Orbiter 3 balloon. I don't know if you guess what it is. It's a window of the capsule. It is frozen by the moisture of the night. And on the other side, you have a rising sun. But you will never see the rising sun if you don't first go through the ice. And this is what so many people are afraid to do today, because today we have ice, we have problems, we have difficulties. We're in a crisis. And a lot of people are so afraid about the future that they suffer and they prefer to suffer in the problem they know than to challenge themselves to think in another way. So maybe we have to remember each time we're facing a crisis that life is not here to destroy us. Life is here to challenge us. Life is here to bring us obstacles, to oblige us to drop ballast and to change altitude in order to improve ourselves, in order to identify the tools we need to be better after the crisis than we were before. So the crisis when we accept it, allows us to evaluate. In other words, a crisis that we accept becomes an adventure. The adventure, it's just a crisis that we accept. But the crisis will be an adventure that we refuse. And it's up to us to decide if we want to be the victims of our fate or if we want to be the actors of our future. What I wish is that we will all become actors of our future. But for this, we have to be ready to take other altitudes and other directions. We need this pioneering spirit. We need this spirit of explorers in everything we do, in ecology, in industry, in politics, in finance, in economy, and also as citizens in order to have a better quality of life on this planet. So this is what I wish. I was happy to share it with you. Thank you very much
0: hope that conversations inspired you and given you some proper actionable insight please look out for the next episode and if you haven't signed up for the film versions please visit the blue earth website at blueearthsummit.com blue earth summit is happening from the 11th to the 13th of october 2022 in the great city of bristol We believe in the power of the outdoors to improve our health and further establish purpose-led business. Register your interest at blueearthsummit.com.